Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. He reigned, and then number six, his age at beginning is 25 years of age, when he took the throne. And uh, number seven, ancestry, family details, and this is interesting here, Father Ahaz, a wicked apostate father. So his father, so those of you who were here when we did a year or so back on the three or four generations, he's a very bad generation, Ahaz, but from, so a bad father doesn't always mean a bad son, and a good father doesn't always mean a good son, as we'll see. So very bad father, wicked apostate man. Uh, father, uh, father Ahaz, his mother Abijah, and the reference there shows that uh, uh, his mother being Abijah, she was the daughter of Zechariah. And as far as we can understand, the daughter of Zechariah, the prophet that we looked at last week, who had visions of God uh, on the King Uzziah. So it seems as if that was his daughter. So that's why I've got possibly a godly mother. So possibly a godly mother. A wicked father, apostate father, mother Abijah, possibly a godly mother. All right, now we have quite a number of points on here uh, that I want you to look at on the positive side. And I'd like you to go over to, to a couple of scriptures here. So on the positive side, good qualities and deeds. We have some uh, wonderful things here. So let's, before you, well, I'll let you start writing the first one because you've got a lot of writing to do. Uh, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Now remember what we've been repeating pretty well every week. What were all kings judged by? Two major things. Number one, they were judged by their attitude to, and many remember this, the prophet, the word of the Lord, and then number two, house of Lord. So, Everybody remember that. Every king also was judged by those two things, their attitude to the word of the Lord, which was through the prophet, because nearly all the kings were given a prophet. Because uh, in those days, the Holy Spirit was not available for all. The Holy Spirit is available for us now. And we have the written word of God, the complete word of God. And every king was judged by his attitude to the word of God through the prophet. Uh, and then number two, by his attitude to the house of the Lord, uh, the temple of the Lord. All right, now, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Listen to these first few verses. And there's so much material here, but I just had to condense the outline here. Uh, I'll read verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old, and he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father done. Now, Verse 3, he in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Why don't you put Matthew chapter 6.33 next to this point? So that's the reference. So the first year of his reign, the first month. Now, to, to really fully appreciate that, you'd have to remember Ahaz, his father, was a bad, bad guy. Ahaz, his father, had closed the temple of the Lord. He'd shut the doors. He'd got rid of all the furniture and, and chopped it to pieces. He'd brought into the courts of the Lord uh, some uh, counterfeit altar that he saw in Assyria. And he set up little idols in all the courts of the, the two courts of the temple. So his father was bad, bad, bad news. 
And so now Hezekiah is a very brave man that right he didn't think, oh, well, I'll wait for a few years till I get the favor of the people and until I you know, become popular and the people accept me and then I'll, I'll gradually get the house. No, first year, first month. So right from the start, Matthew 6.33 is the scripture I gave you, Matthew 6.33, which says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things be added unto you. So first things first. First year, first month, he said, I'm going to nail my colors to the mast. I'm going to open the doors of the house of the Lord. We're going to have a great cleansing. We're going to begin with God's house. So as a king... He begins with the house of his attitude to the house of He sets up his standard right there. So seek ye first the kingdom of God. And as you go through those scriptures, I'll let you take down the next one here. Uh, while you're doing that, all in these verses I'll read. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in, into the east gate. And he said unto them, hear me, hear me ye Levites. Uh, I'll go to the New King James. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord your God of your fathers and carry out the filthiness or the rubbish from the holy place. So you see what happened to the house of the Lord? The house of the Lord just become with filthiness, corruption, just being left in decay. So he says, okay, sanctify yourselves first of all, priests, and then sanctify the house of the Lord and carry the filthiness out of the holy place. And you know, there's many lessons there because the church is God's house. We are God's temple. You and I individually and corporately are the temple of God. So God wants all the filth, the rubbish to be cleansed out of our whole being, spirit, soul, and body. And remember, tabernacle and temple were three parts. And if we wanted to apply this, we can't go too far on it tonight. But our body is the outer court. Our soul is the holy place. And our spirit is the most holy place where once God comes in, our spirit becomes the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory actually dwells in our spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And see, the whole temple, holiest of all, holy place, and outer court has to be cleansed. So carry out all the filthiness. So God wants clean temples, individually, corporately. Plenty of lessons there. All right, so he sanctifies and restores the Levitical priestly ministry, Number three, the third thing he does, as you're writing down that in verse 20 to 24, he restores the altar of the Lord. You'll find as you go through that chapter, he challenges the priest in, uh, uh, I'll, I'll read verse seven, uh, six. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the Lord God of Israel. If you look at verse 7, those three things were to be done morning and evening continually. Number one, the lamps were to be burning morning and evening continually. There was to be a, a continual supply of oil in the lamps, the golden lampstick, morning and evening. Number two, burning incense. Incense was to be offered on the golden altar morning and evening. These were the daily sacrifices. The daily ministrations is the word I'm after. And then burnt offering morning and evening on the brazen altar. There had to be the morning and evening sacrifice. So these were the three morning and evening ministrations. And so Hezekiah said, okay, let's get back to this. The wrath of the Lord was upon them and trouble, astonishment, hissing. 
And now in verse 10, he says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel. And remember, this is his first month and the first year of his reign. He says, hey, we're going to seek first the kingdom of God. That his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Now, my sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, minister to him, and burn incense. And so the Levites respond to that. So the first thing they do is set up the altar of God, the sacrifice. And you see, that's the first. You'll notice the first is the first year, first month of his, of his reign. And he restores the altar Lord. This is the first article of furniture in anybody's approach to the house of the Lord. No way into the holy place at the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. No way unless you came by way of blood. So he puts the blood first. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, no forgiveness. So he restores the altar of the Lord. And you'd find that his father, Ahaz, had chopped the altar up and stuck a counterfeit altar that he'd seen down uh, with the king of Assyria and stuck that in the house and got rid of the altar of the Lord. Now Hezekiah says, hey, let's put the altar in its proper place. All right, number four. So there's so much material on this king. He restores the tabernacle of David and the Davidic worship. We can only just read the scripture, let the scripture speak for itself. Uh, in verse um, 25, And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet, for so is the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David, you note the commandment of David, the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, listen to this language, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets. So we have a restoration of Davidic worship, song of the Lord, musical instruments of David. In fact, it's an interesting thing uh, to go through the godly kings of Judah, all the kings of Judah, uh, all judged there, uh, you'll find there were about five revivals, five awakenings in the nation. Uh, we did one with Asa, and uh, later on another king there, I forget them all, Joash, Uzziah, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah. Every one of the kings, once they cleansed the house of the Lord, they, every one of them, they restored the Davidic worship. They all restored uh, the tabernacle of David, the order of worship of the singers and the musicians and the song of the Lord. Uh, so God, when God said through Amos, I'll build again the tabernacle of David that was fallen down, that's exactly what happened. See, a godly king uh, would, would, would restore the worship and then the next king, there'd be apostasy and then the next king, godly king, God would raise up a godly king and restore it and then you'd find ungodly kings, the whole thing would fall and then God would raise up another godly king and say, hey, let's get back to this. Another bad few kings here. And, you know, and, you know that's just been church history. You know, as we often say, the only thing we learn from church history is we never learn from church history. And so, uh, you know, as you go to the early church and the Davidic order of worship that was there, and Acts 15, where I'll build again the tabernacle of David that's fallen down, that the Gentiles might come in. Then the church declines and God has to raise up some reformers and, 
And then Martin Luther, who restored singing in the church. It was, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. Nobody could sing in that day. Almost a thousand years of the Dark Ages, when the Roman church cut out singing, the priests chanted and, and uh, sung in Latin. And as uh, David says, you know, Latin is a language dead as dead can be. First it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. So, you know, uh, a tongue and no interpretations, the age of the counterfeit and the substitute. And so every revival, you know, God says, let's get back to some Davidic worship there. So here King Hezekiah is doing that. All right, so restoration and uh, listen to the language here. Um, and all the congregation worshipped and the singers sang. No, oh, I don't think they said, let's turn to hymn 666. I think there's some good spontaneous praise there, wouldn't you think? And the trumpeter sounded and all this continued for five minutes until the people were worn out and sat down. Oh, it doesn't say that, it says until the burnt offering was finished. And some of those old bullocks took a long time to burn. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David. So you notice the commandment of David, the instruments of David, the words of David. And they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads in worship. And the end result is Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. A powerful, powerful meeting. How many would like to have been at that? All six of us? How many would like to have been at that service? All right. Number five, another important thing that Hezekiah did is he restores the feast. You see, his whole ministry is a ministry of restoration. So he restores the feast of the Lord. Passover, Pentecost, a whole chapter basically is given to that. And we're told here, I've just put a brief quote there, there was never a feast of Passover. Actually, what Hezekiah did, he sent out a, a, a proclamation through all of Israel, through the 12 tribes, uh, the, the northern kingdom, pardon me, the 10 tribes, plus the two tribes of Judah, and called for a national assembly and say, hey, let's get back to the house of the Lord, temple of God, back to Passover, the beginning, the first of the month of Passover again was the first of the month, Pentecost, the third month, then Tabernacles, but let's get back to restoring the Feast of Passover. That's what the Reformers, basically, their message was. Martin Luther, Calvin, all those guys, their basic message was uh, the truths pertaining to Passover, justica justification by faith in the blood. Later on, in 1906, there was a restoration of the Feast of Pentecost. See, so... Israel's history, church history, a lot of parallels there. So restoration of the feast. Um, let me just give you a couple of scriptures from here. Uh, when, when he sent this decree out uh, to the different tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, uh, we're told, so the posts or the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. So, you know, that's the reaction. Hezekiah, who's he thinking he's setting up the temple again and calling a national feast of Passover? I mean, oh, forget it. Nevertheless, divers uh, of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart 
to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. And so they gathered there to keep Passover, unleavened bread, a ve- uh, unleavened bread, uh, a very great congregation. And then uh, for a multitude of people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves. And listen to this verse here. Yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written, because they had to put it in the second month instead of the first month because people were so unclean. But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, the good Lord pardon everyone that prepares his heart to see God and the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Remember the first, first Passover under Moses, the people were healed. And here's a great wave of healing under this Passover, a national conclave here. And uh, tremendous language there. And so it says in verse 26, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Greatest feast of Passover they'd had since Solomon. All right, number six, another good quality of this king. You notice that many of the bad kings God doesn't give uh, many verses to. Doesn't waste the Bible on them. And it's interesting to go back to the genealogies in Genesis. Did you know only or mainly the godly kings had the years of their life recorded? The, the bad guys in the line of Cain, no years recorded. Because time out of God is time lost. A person's life is wasted. No use recording their years, it's wasted life. All right, number six, he destroys idolatry in Judah. And as you go through those scriptures I've put there, he went around, got rid of all the graven images and uh, graven images. What else? I'm trying to find one of the verses here. Yes. Uh, Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah and break the images in pieces, the sacred pillars like the totem poles, and, uh, and, and cut down the groves, the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they'd utterly destroyed them all. Boy, that was a real cleansing throughout the land, destroying all the idols. Brave, brave king. All right, we refer to this last week. Another wonderful thing this king did was he destroyed the idolatrous serpent of brass. Listen to what has happened here in um, whatever verse I want. Second uh, Kings 18 only records this. Second Kings 18 and verse uh, 4. He removed the high places, break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made for unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it and he called it Nehushtan which simply means a piece of brass. Now as I said last week many times things that were used in a divine visitation become things of idolatry and uh, what church today and churches, see, why do we do these things? We have to burn our jolly incense to the saints or on high altars and low altars. 
all of that is heathenism that's crept into the church. Why do we do it? Incense and nonsense and bells and smells. And so here, God had used the brazen serpent to heal people. But now, the thing that God used has now become an idol and they're burning incense to it. You know, as I said, anything we learn from history is we never learn from history. So anything can become idolatry. See, the communion table has become idolatrous in the Roman church, mass. And so the priests like to drink the blood and give the people the wafer, but the life is in the blood. So they withhold the life from people. It's idolatrous. The high altars and the low altars and the bells and smells and swinging of incense, all an abomination to the Lord. This side of the cross. Because you can have all that externalism and miss the reality of the thing. That's idolatry. And see, as uh, I often say, when Jesus came, Jewry was idolatrous. Now they didn't have idols, but what had happened, they were worshipping the temple of God and they missed the God of the temple. Right? They were worshipping the altar of God and missed the God of the altar. And today we have the same danger with music. We can worship the music of God and miss the God of music. Anything that comes between us and God, even though God may have originated, becomes idolatry because it's Him. We worship places and miss the person. So constantly we've got to remind ourselves, it's you, Lord. It's Him. Seek not Bethel. Seek not Gilgal. Don't seek Beersheba. Seek the Lord. It's our relationship to Him. These aids to divine health, these aids to worship, we worship the aid and miss the worship. How many understand what I'm saying here? So we're constantly, even in Waverly Christian Fellowship, got to watch these things. As I said once before, some people, I think it's pretty well stopped it now. Well, I didn't get anything out of the worship this morning. Well, who's worship for? I didn't think worship was for us. I thought worship was for God. For God. I always ask the question, did God get anything out of it? That's the bottom line. God, did you get anything out of the worship this morning? We had a good time. Did you get anything out? See, that's, that's always the bottom line. So, you know, constantly got to keep our hearts on that. How many can say amen? All right, number, number eight. Look at what else he did in this whole ministry of restoration. Number eight, he restored the divine financial system of tithes and offerings for the support of the Levites' ministry. And a whole chapter is given over that. So, uh, you know, if I did this properly, I'd like to spend a whole term on this and uh, see what Hezekiah did. You know, people ask these questions. If we just study the word more, you know where it says in Malachi uh, that you robbed the Lord in, in tithes and offerings, this whole nation cursed with a curse, and people... Uh, bring a curse upon themselves when they rob God in tithes and offerings. I don't put it. Nobody else. It's a self-inflicted curse. And uh, when the Lord says through the prophet, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. Do you know where the storehouse would have uh, originated? This man here. And uh, if you had time to read the scripture, that whole chapter, Hezekiah created the storehouse and the storehouse was in the house of the Lord where they brought their tithes and offerings. Our fulfillment is 
bring our tithes and offerings to the house of the Lord Sunday morning. It's material sheep shed and that it all originated with this man. And amazing, there's, there's just too much in that chapter just to take time on. All right, number, uh, number nine here, we're told that he did that which was good, right, and true. They're, they're the exact words of the Bible. He did that which was good, right, and true before the Lord. And then number 10 uh, continues on, except we have the king's account of it. That's the chronicle's account. It says that Hezekiah trusted God. He held fast to the Lord. He departed not from following the Lord, and he kept his commandments. And remember, way back there at the beginning, that all the kings were to write a copy of the book of the law. They were to read the law and the commandments of the Lord, meditate in the Lord day and night, and keep a copy of the book in the throne and, and, and fulfill. And, and he must have done that because we have this language. He trusted God. He held fast to the Lord. He departed not from following the Lord. He kept his commandments, and the Lord was with him and prospered him. That's the end result. So did that which was good, right, and true before the Lord, trusted God, held fast to the Lord, departed not from following the Lord, kept his commandments, and the Lord was with him and prospered him. Okay, uh, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but he meditates in the Lord day and night, and uh, whatsoever he do shall prosper. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and whatever he does shall prosper, and meditating in the Lord day and night. Okay. You don't have to pray for the blessing of the Lord. It's automatic if we follow his word. We follow the manual. All right, number 11. In, uh, we're told that in everything that Hezekiah put his hand to, in the service of God's house, in the law and the commandments, he sought the Lord with all his heart. Not half-hearted, whole-hearted. And these are all, these are the lessons for us, you know. We half-hearted and we are seeking the Lord. Uh, we seek the Lord with all our heart. With all my heart I'm seeking you, Lord. Not half-hearted or quarter-hearted or my heart's not in it. My head's in it. My heart's not, you know. With all his heart he sought the Lord. And then number 12, and there's several chapters given over to this here. He sought the Lord through the prophet Isaiah's word to be delivered from the king of Assyria. Uh, the king of Assyria had uh, taken the house of Israel captivity, the Assyrian captivity, and now he's filled up with pride. And so he comes up against Jerusalem and he says to Hezekiah, look, I've, I've conquered the house of Israel and none of their gods were able to deliver them. Where's your God able to deliver you? And so Hezekiah sends over to Isaiah and he gives him, gets a word from him. And uh, so God just dispatched one angel, one angel and said, okay, I want you to do a little bit of mopping up operations. And in one night, one angel from heaven killed 185,000 Assyrians. Not a bad night's work, was it? And uh, you see, when God fought Israel's wars, they only did the mopping up. God did it. And so one angel... 185,000 Assyrian soldiers wiped out just like that while Hezekiah is sleeping, the angels working. I would rather have one angel working with me um, than a lot of others, wouldn't you? 
All right, so all wonderful things. Now I want you to go over for our last few moments to three tragic things. I want you to turn over to, uh, let's see, 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 3. I'd like you to look at your Bible on this. Now, here we come to the sad part. I, I hope you've been as challenged on these kings as I have afresh on it. So here we have Hezekiah. And uh, as far as I can gather, you know, we're told he reigned 29 years altogether. He was 25 years of age when he took the throne. And uh, I assume the 15 years extra includes that. So if that was so, this first period would be about 14 years and a glorious reign. Or maybe it's 29 years. I don't know. Uh, I'd have to check that out further. But now we come to one, two, three sad points here. Okay, let's read. Second Kings chapter 20. and not live. What does Hezekiah do? He turns his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, I've walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and I've done what's good in your sight. And he wept sore. And so God changed his mind in verse 4. And Isaiah was just gone out in the middle of court and the word of the Lord came and said, Okay, I've changed my mind. Why don't you go back to Hezekiah? So I'm going to give you an extension of life 15 years. Now, what would you do if God gave you 15 years extended life? What would I do? Right. Now, Hezekiah did three, or three sad things happen in this 15 years. In fact, as you look at what I'm going to finish up on here, he really should have just said, Okay, Isaiah, I accept my time's up. I'll set my house in order. I'll make up my will. I'll sort the kingdom out. And I'm ready to go to be with the Lord. Listen to the, th the things that happened. Go over to Second Chronicles. And these are three things that happened. <coughs> now, most of you probably know the story, but uh, he asked the Lord, he said, okay, Isaiah said, I'm going to give you 15 years, the Lord said, 15 years extension. He said, okay, what's a sign uh, that I'm going to get this 15 years? And so he said, the Lord's going to give you a sign and the sun is going to go backwards 10 degrees. Now, you know, that's an amazing thing when God has to touch one of the planets, uh, touch the sun, a heavenly body, and turn it back 10 degrees as a sign of a man getting healed. Because Isaiah took a lump of figs and put it on the boil that was a death-dealing boil that he had, we're told. And uh, so that, that's quite a miracle. Now, what should Hezekiah have done about that? Go to Second Chronicles 32 and listen to these sad words. In verse 24, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death, 
prayed to the Lord and he spake unto him and gave him a sign. But, number one, Hezekiah rendered not again to the benefit done according to the benefit done unto him. Remember Psalm 103? Forget not all of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who healeth. Yes, our disease. And here was a benefit. But what happened? For his heart was lifted up. So number one, pride of his healing. Now, you know, being human, pride of his healing. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, I've got 15 years extended life here. God's turned the sun, not forward and hastened, but back 10 degrees on the sundial. I mean, you know, nobody's, boy, I must really be, you know, give me my badge for humility, please. Hey? Pride of his healing. His heart was lifted up in pride. I gave you scriptures on pride last week. Second thing, in verse, uh, or verse 26, he, uh, the wrath of God was upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. So God just got mad about the whole thing. Pride, we looked at scriptures last week. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So his congregation pretty lifted up. Boy, you know, 15 years, sun turned back, big deal. Pride of him. So the wrath of the Lord came not on. Next thing happens is we have pride of prosperity because the king of Babylon sends up to him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land. And what a golden opportunity. I mean, here's the king of Babylon coming to the king of Jerusalem. What a golden opportunity to say, hey, the God of heaven visited me and has extended my life and he gave a sign on the sun. You Babylonians worship the sun God, but the true God controls the sun and no record that he did. And you know what Hezekiah did? He was so conceited, he showed the king of Babylon and the ambassadors from Babylon everything that was in his palace, all the king's treasures. Listen to God's comment on it. You say, big deal. Go down. And let me ask you a question quickly. Our time's up. Do you believe God uh, will never leave a person? Hands up. Yes, no. No, the Bible, yes. Listen to this. God does leave. You say, oh yeah, but Jesus said, I'll never leave you forsaken. Just, just read the Bible. Verse 31 of Second Chronicles 30, 32. How be it in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him. What for? To try him. What for? That he might prove what is in his heart. Now, where'd God go? God's omnipresent. He can't go anywhere. Pretty dull. God can't go anywhere. He's omnipresent. I like going somewhere, don't you? At least going home. God can't go anywhere. He's already there. So God left him. What for? To try him, to test him, what was in his heart. Put down Deuteronomy up. Uh, eight, pardon me, uh, time's up. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 to 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 to 3. And you'll find that at times, listen carefully to how I put this. Now, I know the Bible says God will never leave me nor forsake me, but let's get some things clear here. God sometimes withdraws the consciousness of his presence to see how we're going to react. 
So God left him. He just withdrew from him, the King James says, New King James. What for? Just to test him out, to see what was in his heart. And God knows how to orchestrate circumstances for all of us to see how we're going to react. He's done it for me over the years. Anybody else beside me? Yeah. God can't go anywhere, but he just withdraw the conscience of his presence to see how we're going to be out, to expose what's in his heart. That was number one. So number two, he failed there. And here's probably the toughest thing. In this 15 years, he had a son by the name of Manasseh who was the worst of the worst of the worst kings of Judah ever. And the unbelievable crimes that he did, the worst ever. In fact, so great were the sins of Manasseh, even though he repented at the very end, so great were the sins of Manasseh that God said, the land can never be cleansed of the blood that Manasseh... So, God, so here we have Ahaz, ungodly father, Hezekiah, godly son, godly son, godly father, wicked son. And see, if Hezekiah had have died when God said, hey, it's time to quit, that son would never have been born. And sometimes this is tough. Sometimes I say to people, and they say, well, I can't have children, I want to. And they force God, say, that son or that daughter turns out evil. Say, hey, God knows. But when we force God's hand, hmm. so if he had died, that son would never have been born. So, you know, Three things. In fact, if he had have died when God said, set your house in order, we wouldn't have had this, we wouldn't have had this, and God said through the prophet, all the things that you've shown the king of Babylon, they're all going to end up in Babylon captivity, and he wouldn't have had this wicked son. Great man of God. So uh, after doing this study today, I said, Lord, if my time's up, um, no. <laughs> Not going to ask for 15 years extension. Okay, I didn't give you the answers on that last part. Try and do it next week on our last session next week. But I really hope, like me, you've been challenged by this character study of the kings. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, which is uh, always a challenge to our hearts, Lord. It just makes us realize our own fallenness, our own humanity. And uh, there go we but for the grace of God. Father, write these lessons deep upon our hearts so that we learn not from our, from our own mistakes, but the mistakes of others. Seal your word to our hearts, Father, and let your blessing be upon us now as we separate until we gather again over the weekend. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. For more in-depth teaching on Israel's kings, be sure to see Kevin Connor's book, Kings of the Kingdom, available from word.com.au, from amazon.com, and also in PDF format on Kevin's website, kevinconnor.org.